Well, if you have a Bible or want to turn to uh, the passage in one of the Bibles provided, it's on page 1711, or in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read the passage here first and then we'll, uh, we'll begin. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. This is God's Word. Let's pray. O Lord, will You open our hearts and our minds to see and be transformed by this powerful, beautiful presentation of who Jesus is and what He's done. That our lives would be so conformed to His image, transformed by this reality, this truth, that we would be unrecognizable from our old self and that we would believe all the more the truth of the Gospel. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, this is obviously one of the most important passages in all of Scripture that describes in such brevity what Christ has done for His church. If it's a passage that you're unfamiliar with, read it. Read the whole book of Philippians and read it over and over to understand and and breathe in some of the depth of of this work that Jesus has done. It's It's a surprising work. Humility is one of those things that gets some lip service today, but if there's one of those virtues that was elevated in times past, particularly in Christian cultures, times past, that has been overlooked, passed by, set aside, today it is humility. As Tim Keller, pastor in New York, was preaching this passage, he opened it describing he had just finished preaching through uh, some, um, uh, some passages 
calling the church to uh, rightly pursue the works of mercy and justice in the city. And he pointed out that those are things that when the church presents them, they're praised for. They go along with the stream of our cultural uh, preferences and movements today. Mercy and justice are rightly praised. But when you come to the, the topic of humility, you're going counterculture against the current. Humility has this interesting little twist to it that when you meet somebody who is humble, you generally enjoy being with them. But when you hear recommendations on how to get ahead in life or how to find happiness or how to be successful, humility is rarely on the list. Rather, it's present yourself in all of your gifts. Celebrate yourself. In one memorable podcast about a church planner, it was a podcast called Startup. It had a series of episodes about a church planner, I think in Philadelphia, who went through all the typical travails of church planning and eventually uh, got out of church planning. But I remember one particular coach who he spoke to on the phone, and they even had a recording of it, coaching this church planner to actually pimp his preaching, to present it as something that everybody needs to hear. And if you look out there in social media, whether it's in the world of the church and preachers, or in the entertainment industry, or in sports, or whatever it is, either people stay completely off social media, or they are on social media typically to present themselves and present themselves in all of their glory for the world to see. Think better of yourself is the typical self-help solution. If you think better of yourself, other people will think better of yourself as well. And yet, particularly verses 1 through 4 here, are an instruction for Christians to verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves and look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this passage being such a rich passage, we're going to take it in two weeks. So this week we're going to focus mostly on verses 1 through 4. And the next week we'll focus more on what Christ has done for us. But you can't read one without the other. You can't read an instruction to be humble unless unless you have someone like Christ. And there's no other person like Christ. Unless you have Jesus Christ who is reminding you constantly that you are enough. You are sufficient. Not because of what you've done, and this is significant in what we'll see over this week and next week, not because of what you have done, not because of your accomplishments, not because of how good you are at whatever you do, but because God has made you in His image. And though you have sinned and rebelled against God and turned away from Him, 
Christ has reconciled you with God and reminded you of this beautiful way that God has made you and continues to view you in. And with that knowledge, with that example of Christ, both in His own humility and in in the, the knowledge of what He's done for us, we can come to these instructions, the imperatives, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now let's... Let's stay there for just a minute and start with the imperative and then we'll take a step back and look at why we can do that. The why for the what. What's the power that enables us to take this countercultural approach, the approach that many people fear. If you ask most people to do this, they will turn away and run with fear. So what is it that enables a Christian to pursue this virtue of humility so freely and experience the joy that comes from it. You notice I tied in the Beatitudes with this. The Beatitudes are promoting this type of humility and this posture to life. That it's not those who seem to have the glory in life by the number of followers they have on social media or the amount that they're paid or the amount of fame that they have. It's not that that measures a person's true blessing in life. Quick definition of blessing. Blessing is essentially happiness that is experienced from other people. Happiness, as it's described most of the time in pop culture, is something that we try to generate ourselves. But blessing is different than happiness because it comes from others. Now, humility may be a way to gain friends. People like being around humble people. But oftentimes it doesn't achieve much success in the world, at least it seems not to. Let's look at this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. These words are fairly rich. The first one actually is somewhat less important. It's selfish ambition or a rivalrous kind of spirit. It's measuring ourselves against somebody else. It's finding and measuring our success against that of other people. If you remember something about Paul's life and this experience that he's writing the Philippians from, remember part of his story is that there are a number of preachers who are gloating because Paul's in prison because they're jealous of Paul's success in ministry. And out of rivalry, you remember, out of rivalry, they're celebrating that Paul is now in prison. And Paul is able to say, out of his own humility, praise God. Because they're not preaching a false doctrine. They're not preaching a false gospel. They're preaching it out of false motives. Praise God that the gospel is being proclaimed even with those false motives. They're heading down a dangerous path. But praise God, and he's able to demonstrate this humility before them. But the second word is, is even more full. And I've got to be honest, I've never preached this passage that I can remember. And I've never really looked at the Greek of this, this word and delved into it very deeply. But, and I've kind of always read over the second part of conceit and identified more with the selfish ambition and the rivalry. I mean, uh, 
again, I won't hang on pastors too much, but as a pastor, constantly tempted to look at your measure success against the number of people in your church or, or the various numbers and, and measures. I was just with a pastor uh, who was leading our retreat, he and his wife leading our pastors and wives retreat this past week, who planted a 4,000 church that grew in eight years to 4,000 people, mega church in Nashville. And I was just constantly wondering, what's his secret to his success? You know, what's his, what's his sauce? What's the, how can I do and, and having to catch myself and say, no, that is it's a spirit of selfish ambition, the rivalry. But this second word, the conceit, and some of your translations may translate, be different. In fact, I know they are. The King James Version translates this vain glory. Vanity, thinking of yourself, related to selfish ambition and, and uh, the uh, rivalry, again, vain glory. The New American Standard Version translates it empty conceit. Empty conceit. And the New, IV, New, New International Version is vain conceit. Clearly, the concepts of conceit are there, vanity that is in emptiness, but, but one of the commentators that I had use these words, empty glory. And I think the, the Greek really is probably the best translation. I don't know why no one has chosen this. Empty glory. Do nothing out of empty glory. Now, glory is a little bit of a, of a foreign word. It's a little bit of an archaic word for us. We don't quite know what to make of it. And probably the best comparison or the best example of glory is fame in our modern culture. It is praise that comes from other people. We relish. We need to hear praise from other people. Don't hear me wrong there that, uh, that we just need to cut ourselves off. We need to hear praise from other people. Praise helps us. We're made to experience some level of praise. But glory is another level of praise. It is, a, a, um, it is a, an extremely high praise. It is the type of praise that we look at others who have millions of followers, fans, and we say, I would love to have that. It, was, it would be great if everybody thought that I was, or I had the skill to deserve that or to merit that. But the word here is a single Greek word, single Greek word that identifies this not as true glory, but empty glory. In other words, it's praise that is unmerited, undeserved. It is oftentimes what people who are famous even seek after. They want to have a mystique about them. They want to have more glory than what they can rightly hold. The Old Testament concept of glory is an interesting Hebrew word that, that is used, the same word is used for weight. Something heavy. Because there's an element of glory that is weighty. And a question that always has to be asked, answered is, can something that receives the glory hold, carry the weight? 
And you see, it's interesting how many successful artists, pastors, sports figures, various other professionals eventually falter under the weight of the glory that has been placed on them. The man leading our retreat openly and has publicly shared that after 25 years he faced a crushing burnout. And I'm sure part of it was related to the weight of glory. For in getting to know him and we were able to spend a lot of time with him one-on-one, it was a delight to spend time with him. But he's still just a normal man. A delight to be around. A humble man having gone through the travails of ministry. What Paul is warning us as a church, them as a church against, is not the seeking of praise rightly, but the seeking of praise that we can't bear the weight of. Eternal weight of glory is the language he uses in another place. Eternal weight of glory is something that only Jesus can hold, can carry. And while we're busy trying to pimp our own preaching and build up our own glory in various places, it is a block. It is a block against us being able to experience the glory that Jesus has given to us and the glory that we're able to take in Jesus and for what he has done for us. And so long as we are filled with the selfish ambition and conceit or empty glory, empty fullness, it is impossible for us to give Jesus the glory that will ultimately lead to us being able to be satisfied in Him and in who He has made us to be. Now with these words, empty glory, there are many things in this letter and even in this passage that come to life. And we'll look at those more as we go along. Next week we'll look that Christ emptied Himself, it says. Who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word in Greek that He uses here is, uh, is, is directly related to this word of empty glory, except just there, he's just emptying himself. And then we see at the end in verse 11, the widest, what, what happens at the end? Well, Jesus is glorified. But even Jesus in his glory is still glorifying God the Father. There's a constant glorying in the other, in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity delights in one another and never has this moment of selfish ambition, of vain conceit. Even though God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, they're the only ones in all of creation who deserve this glory. And yet, Jesus emptied himself, setting aside any claim to that glory 
And part of the questions around this theological question, what does it mean that he emptied himself? He, he set aside any claim to the glory. He didn't say, look at me, here's what I deserve when he was born and he taught and walked and humbly worked as a carpenter. And even in his teaching, he was not out telling people, come and glorify me and glory in me. He was coming in the form of a servant. Being a humble teacher, an itinerant preacher. Not having any place that he called his own to lay his head. He wasn't homeless. But he still depended on everybody else around him to provide for his needs. He took a humble position. Even to the point of going to the cross. When he went to the cross, Isaiah prophesied, and this, he opened not his mouth at his accusers when he was wrongly accused. He had every right if he chose to do it. Every right if he chose to do it, but he chose to remain silent. Why? Not to clear his name. But so that in his death and in the guilt that was laid on him, we could be made righteous our guilt would be transferred to Him and His righteousness given to us. Christ's humility is an example for us. But more significantly, it is the fuel that enables us to let go of the things that we think that we want Now, what does it mean to consider others more significant than ourselves? To look not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. There are a number of questions that come up in this. How did Jesus view himself? Did he count others more significant than himself, better than himself? I was curious as I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones on this, and he was talking about the, 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 the command... And, and it struck me, it was, it was almost off-putting because he said, when you look at the drunkard and the person who has given away his whole life because of some addiction, and, and oftentimes addiction is not the fault of the person uh, entirely themselves, there are many other contributing factors. And so I don't want to go too hard on that or even go there necessarily. There's a, absolutely compassion that Jesus shows even to that person. But Martin Lloyd Jones is kind of surprising. He said, when you're comparing yourself with others, he's not saying count that person as a better person than you. Count that person as a better person than you. This was striking for me because I, I, I went through a phase when I came out of um, working professionally and then going to seminary and, and being in San Diego and confronted with homelessness for the first time. I went through a phase where I, I did that. I, I actually got to know a number of homeless people and have a number of relationships with them. Um, and I, I counted them as, as more important than me or better than me and, and sought to learn something from them. And it led me down some odd paths. One of the paths was that I thought that I was fairly discerning, but I was lied to on such a regular basis that I, I, I lost all kind of confidence in, those, in that lifestyle. I also thought that they had taken, some of them at least, a kind of a humble position in life. 
when in reality, most people have not chosen that position at all and, uh, and are there as, as a result of a number of poor decisions and, and sinful decisions and, and are, are, are certainly, even if they're knowledgeable of the scriptures, are not the type of people that we, that we are going to learn from or are going to be, be, be taught from. I bring this up because it's an important distinction of how we approach other people in life. Now, here's another example that I'll give that counters that. What does it say? Jesus took the very form of a servant for our sake. Now, here's a place where we really have to be careful and we have to guard ourselves. Those who work in service industry around us, who do housekeeping and make minimum wage, various things, if you're a professional and making significant income, do you have a tendency to think less of those people? Consider yourself more important than them. Do you see their work as being menial? Do you somehow begrudge them, even if you somewhat appreciate what they do because it means that you don't have to do something? Those who work under your authority, do you treat them as image bearers of Christ equal in every way with you when God looks at them and sees them as a person? If you're responsible for paying other people, do you pay people a fair wage? Do you treat people as if they are somewhat discardable and you'll use them for your own benefit as long as it's helpful for you and then write them off later? Or do you invest in other people who may be a drag for a little while until they grow up and mature in various ways? Do you see your responsibility in all kinds of spheres of life, whether it's parenting or teaching or some other kind of relationship as fostering other people? Do you enter into friendships with people who are different than yourself and appreciate some of the things that you can learn from those other people? Not just surface friendships, but deep abiding friendships, long-lasting friendships. Part of the theme of the book of Philippians is the unity of the church in Philippi. In fact, it's a central theme that they would be unified, and that is the goal of this passage. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You will face opponents in life. Life will not be free of conflict. But in the church, there is this call to unity. And if you're taking notes and want a new heading, I don't always put points in there, but this is a a new heading. And that of the, the role of Christian unity in the church and the call to it. Because that humility that we've just been talking about and setting aside these other things should and must lead us to deeper friendships with one another. And I'll tell you that in the Southern California culture, having lived in the Midwest and in Atlanta, not the deep South, but the South, and experienced many other regions in the world, Southern California 
has some of the worst friendships I've ever experienced. They're surface. They're short-term. And I'm not picking on you. You as friends in the church here have been, have been good friends. And I don't hear this as directed to you. This is, that's not at all. I'm saying generally in the culture. And we are friends with a lot of people in Southern California and San Diego. Even among other people at other churches and other pastors, the depth of friendship that I've experienced, that we've experienced in Southern California, is the worst of any place that I've ever experienced. And I think, I think that oftentimes the thing that blocks our friendship the most is our pride, our selfish ambition, our conceit, our inability to look at others as more significant than ourselves, to constantly be looking around the room and saying, I'd rather be friends with that person, but I'm stuck here talking with this person. pastor who was speaking this past week used the phrase, the enemy of the good is trying to find the better. And I'll confess to you that one of my places of greatest joy and, and fellowship when I uh, came out of college and was a young, young man, 20-something in the church, I was guilty of this and looking for the best friends I could find and I realized that the friends were right there. And I just needed to invest more time in the relationships with people. And still, all of my best friends are those people that I got to know in, the, in my 20s. And I'll also make another confession that I was arrogant in college, and I still am very prone to arrogance. And I try to hide it a lot. Some of you have probably seen it. I try to hide it, and I, and I try to repent of it, and I do repent of it, but I'm still prone to a deep, abiding arrogance. So much so that I had a friend in college in my senior year as we were talking and reminiscing about college saying, I met you as a freshman and I avoided you because you were so arrogant and I didn't even remember knowing him as a freshman. Deep abiding friendships and unity in the church is not something that is just optional. It's not something that we hope for and one day we'll experience in heaven. Paul is saying to the church in Philippi and to us that that type of friendship that surpasses all of these other things that, that supports one another even when one is in prison and that loves one another and goes and travels to him as one of the Philippians did to bring him food even to the point where he experienced near death because he got sick and was, was caring for Paul. This type of friendship is what the church is called to and what we are capable of if if we have found, verse 1, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Here, the next line, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Isn't that an interesting Complete my joy. You probably have written, read right over. There's so much in this passage. Easier. Complete my joy. What's Paul saying here? It seems almost uh, 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 ironic that he would say this. And then he says, 
but, but don't do anything from selfish ambition. Paul's presenting a, a need of his own, or at least a want of his own, that he would have his joy completed by these other people. By these other people. He needs something from them as an example of what it is to be a true friend. Because a true friend doesn't just say, I'm going to ignore all of my needs and give everything to somebody else. A true friend understands that, that he or she has needs that other friends need to meet as well. And Paul is saying that he needs, he wants, he desires, even though he's found the satisfaction in Christ, he desires and, and needs this completed joy that is found in the unity of the church there, in their friendship and support of him. The way they're being a good church, good friend to him is by being a good church to one another, by loving one another, by, by having this mind, that same mind, that unity in the church. And it's helpful to see that and, and to understand, you know, something of the difference, classic difference between our need and our wants. I think Paul is rightly wanting this joy. Paul rightly needs to experience the joy of Christ. It is a legitimate need. Some of the time we need to tease out the differences between what we think will bring us happiness and joy and our wants and what we truly need. Because oftentimes our wants get in the way of experience and type of joy and affection and this, this heartfelt, um, heartfelt uh, experience in life. Let me go back a little bit to, to this is really the, the concluding, uh, concluding point here. Affection and sympathy. Affection and sympathy. These two words are kind of strangely translated in, from, from the Greek. If you're in a King James Version, one of these words is actually translated bowels. And it refers to a body organ uh, here, maybe a kidney or something like that. But something that was down there in the type of thing that, that means that these experiences that he's just listed off, this type of love and encouragement and spirit, uh, in the spirit and, and this, type of, um, this type of joy would be something that we experience in the deepest parts of our being, our gut, ancient world saw the heart being the center of, of knowledge and affection, but the, the gut is something that, that you felt with, with all of your emotions. And so Paul is desiring to feel this type of joy and experience this type of encouragement, comfort, participation in the Spirit, connection with the Spirit, unity with the Spirit, affection, sympathy at his deepest levels in his gut. And the way he found that was first looking to what Christ had done for him. That's why in chapter 4, when he gets to it, he says, I found the secret to being satisfied in every circumstance, plenty or in want. And that is to be united with Christ. He says, that's the beginning. And that is sufficient but the way that that plays out in life and in the church and in the world and provides a beautiful witness to the world around us is when the church itself experiences that union with Christ and it brings them close together so that they share their life with this deep, gut-felt 
affection and sympathy for one another. Not just with Christ, but for one another. And he realizes that the demand, the, the, the imperative that he is putting on them is, one, is the diff, most difficult thing he could ask anybody to do. Set aside your own desires, your own pursuit of glory, so that in whatever you do, this doesn't mean you sell everything, go live as a pauper. We touched on that before. It means that in whatever you do, whether you're at the top of your field or whether you're serving and waiting tables, you do it with a love and affection for others. Because Christ has done that for you. You do it with a care for others because you have a security and a satisfaction in Christ that can never be taken away. Because Christ has suffered for you. You say, but I want to keep my rights. I don't want people to trample on me. And Jesus says, I gave up my rights for your sake. Now, what's one way that you can love and serve other people? It's for pursuing the rights of others before yourself. And so as Christians, if we're not pursuing the rights of those who have oftentimes no ability to pursue their own rights, we're missing the opportunity to have this participation with Christ, to experience the affection and sympathy. Christianity is not a quick way to get your needs met by the Holy Spirit. If you view him as a vending machine and you're constantly frustrated because he's not giving you the things you keep asking for. Maybe you've come to Jesus the way you're coming to other relationships, looking more for what you get out of it than what you can put into it. And the point that Paul's making above anything else is that that is ultimately empty. Empty glory that never satisfies. Always leaves us wanting more. Never lets us go to sleep at the end of the day with the comforting words, you're loved. Well done. Praise you for what you've done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, will you forgive us for the ways that we seek glory that is empty? And will you show us how your glory is satisfying? Will you help us to turn our worship and our praise and our glorying to you? We help us to love and serve one another and find tangible ways in real life relationships to consider the needs of others, consider others more uh, better than ourselves and the needs of others as well as our own needs. We help us to follow this example of Christ to be transformed and conformed more and more by his life and into his image. We ask in his name. Amen.